0: Yes, in case you didn't get it the, um, the title of my talk is "Better Living through Alchemy: Some Secrets of Spiritual Medicine and I'm just going to take a little vote. How many people know what I was thinking of when I came up with this title "Better Living through Alchemy?" Yes <laughs> what tell me uh, there was a, I came here to think by the, uh, Chemical Council of the U.S. Better living through chemistry in the 60s. It didn't turn out so well. (laughs) So I'm hoping this will turn out better. First of all, I want to thank the Society, the Ibn R. B. Society, for uh, organizing this wonderful uh, opportunity for us to uh, meet you all and talk to you all. And also the Open Center. I've never been here before, and it's an absolutely fabulous space. It just so calming and so wonderful. I can't wait to see the bookstore and <laughs> break. Uh, I think I'll sit down before I fall down. <laughs> okay. Alchemy. What does this word conjure up for us? Taking something ordinary, valueless, scorned, even maybe disgusting, and making it extraordinary, priceless, desired, Gold, but what does gold mean for us? I mean, how many of us are out there looking for gold? Probably not very many of us. So it's anything that we consider the most quintessential desire and need that we can think of, whether it's something psychological, whether it's something spiritual. It's Generally, I think, not something physical, although you know, in some cases it is. <laughs> Despite its reputation as an ancient and medieval con, it continues to live on in the world's imagination. Indeed, it is hard to escape the word alchemy in an ordinary day. Alchemy is everywhere, in hair and skin products, album covers, historical accounts for the quest for the immortal uh, elixir, the fountain of youth, the gold rush, the alchemical fantasy continues to penetrate our cultural rhetoric. In just one week I found at least three references to alchemy in the media, and I found more, but these are the three that I found (laughs) the most remarkable. Exhibit one, Nina Simone saved our lives, Toni Morrison said of the singer after Simone's death in 2003. Simone meant so much to her and to other black women, I think, in part because how she turned social exclusion into superlative beauty and style. It was this recuperative alchemy that defined soul as a music and as an ethos. Exhibit two. Certain words don't describe me, Prince said. Alchemy was one. When writers ascribed alchemical qualities to his music, they were ignoring the literal meaning of the word, the dark art of turning base metal into gold. He would never do something like that. And finally, Exhibit 3, this description of the last democratic debate, this is my favorite. The candidates struggled to alchemize our exhaustion into excitement. (laughs) (laughs) That was from Maureen Maureen Dowd of the New York Times, September 14th. I love that one. It was like a gift. (laughs) For Ibn Arabi II, the language and the imagery of alchemy provided a rich rich source to draw from in order to express subtle principles that ordinary language could not express. An alchemical strand runs through all of his writings. For him, it seems that alchemy is a truly all-embracing art that includes human sciences of language, letters and composition, poetry, ethics, physiology and physiognomy, natural science and medicine, mathematics, geometry, as well as the highest spiritual truths revealed by scripture, nature, and mystical illumination. There are numerous different readings of alchemy, which tend to divide into two main schools. One is concerned with the material aspects. Alchemy is a precursor of chemistry, confined to manipulating physical matter in an effort to make gold. This is the image that arises of old men in wizard garb, sequestered away in medieval laboratories, hovering over glass retorts while their assistants, the puffers, stoke the fire with massive bellows. There's no doubt that the various early Muslim rulers were chiefly concerned with this kind of alchemy as evidenced by the plethora of earliest translation of Greek alchemical tests commissioned by the ancient equivalents of our gold-plated political leaders. Aristotle's logical works had to wait. In the beginning was the gold, If one stops at this alone, one comes to the conclusions the alchemists of old were engaged in fruitless and foolish tasks of trying to turn dull lead into shining gold, of creating an elixir, a magic panacea that would give its mortal creator eternal life. But as Titus Burckhardt has remarked in his insightful book on alchemy, it never seemed to strike anyone as in the least improbable that an art of the kind alleged should, despite all its folly and deceptions, have implanted itself for centuries on end in the most diverse cultures of East and West. Hence we turn to the second main school of thought, that alchemy is a suprasensory or infrasensory discipline resulting either in the mystical ascent of the alchemist spirit or psychological descent into the soul in modern Jungian depth psychology, or as James Hillman puts it, the sensuous fantastic. There is no doubt that Ibn Arabi's treatment of alchemy touches upon both of these dimensions, yet he adds one more. In his magnum opus, The Futuhat al makkiyya he divides the types of alchemy into natural, spiritual, and divine. Natural alchemy. Natural alchemy is clearly not the aim of Ibn Arabi's treatment of the subject, Despite his references to weights, measures, sulfur and mercury, and so forth, real metals, real elements, fire, water, earth, air, his focus is more on these materials as bridges to higher realities that can be animated through creative imagination, to use an expression made famous by Henri Corbin. The mystical adepts are told they must free themselves from these physical elements before they can ascend the ladder of inner knowledge, it is obvious, however, that the budding alchemist is not draining himself of water or cutting off his air supply. Thus one must cross over into the imaginal and raise these elements to a non-corporeal form. Natural alchemy, alchemy makes use of the very materials and actions of this world. At the base of the operation is an amorphous subject a substance known as the prima materia, Questions regarding the original substance of the universe were answered by the pre-Socratic philosophers in different ways. Heraclitus thought it was fire, Thales, water, and so forth. But for Aristotle, whose philosophy when translated came to form the basis of Islamic philosophy, prime matter's existence is only potential until it's impressed by a form. This is, it is this combination of matter and form that gives everything in the universe its defining properties and its itness. Since it does not seem possible to begin the alchemical work with something that exists only potentially, the alchemists had a different take on prime matter. They start with physical objects, a stone, whether a real stone, some other body, or with a, or with a psychological or spiritual state. It should be emphasized that at the time even Arabi was writing, the universe had not been disenchanted. It was thoroughly alive and sentient from top to bottom, Those of high spiritual discernment whose insight had been divinely unveiled could perceive the life in creatures deemed inanimate. Hence the personification of elements was no mere metaphor. The four elements, fire, air, water, and earth, either combine by attraction or separate by aversion. They exhibit characteristics that also may be applied to human beings. Earth suggests weightiness, inertia, gravity, while fire suggests lightness, quickness, ascent, Water suggests adaptability to various forms, while air suggests mobility and freedom from from limitation. Metals were thought to be generated by the movement of the seven planets. So the connection of the celestial spheres to the lowest of earthly substances is one of the main principles of alchemy. According to Ibn Arabi, the divine name Al-Aziz directs this process. Al-Aziz, I've always found this a very, very difficult divine name to, to translate. I mean, sometimes in translations you see it as the inaccessible, sometimes you see it as the mighty, or what is it? <laughs> I, I, I just generally say the mighty, the inaccessible, and combine it that way. But those, that, that is the name that is, is directing this whole metallic uh, development. The planets also have equivalents in the human constitution. As Evan Arabi writes, the sun is the human being's spirit, the moon is their soul, and the remaining five planets are their five senses. In addition, each planet in alchemical terms is linked to a metal. Sun is equivalent to gold, moon to silver, Saturn to lead, Jupiter, tin, Mars, iron, Venus, copper, and Mercury, quicksilver. As we will later see, each of these planets and metals are presided over by a prophet and something we can only mention here is that each is also connected to a day of the week and to a letter or letters of the the Arabic alphabet. Alchemists believe that metals grow and ripen slowly in the earth like creatures on on earth's surface. Seven metals are their particular focus, the ones I just mentioned, gold, silver, copper, tin, iron and lead. They are like seeds in the earth, whose desire is to become gold. The alchemists believed that in time, a very long time, the metals would progress through stages, eventually becoming gold. The natural process takes so long, however, that alchemy steps in to help them mature into gold through the application of various procedures, such as fire, or or hammering, crushing, uh, dissolving, and so forth. If an RV has a somewhat different different take on the matter, the six non-golden metals are defects in the original golden ore. Which I mean, I think that maybe it's pretty much the same in that if this golden ore is is the uh, is the teleology, is this this what they're what they're meant to be, what they're striving to be, that it's probably you know, very similar to the the alchemical uh, uh, naturalist. So uh, these these golden metals have suffered illnesses, just like human beings, on their way to becoming gold. Ibn Arabi attributes these afflictions to the divine name the harmful and other names of this sort. So we can see how the divine names are operating in the universe. The main operation of alchemy was known by the medieval by medieval European alchemists as Salve et Coagula dissolve and coagulate as James Hillman writes whatever is permanent and habitual must be dissolved by heat or water and whatever is wishy-washy, floating, uncertain, and vaporous must be thickened, hardened, fixed, and reduced. Solve reduces the material and spiritualizes matter. Coagula corporealizes spirit and makes it perceivable to the organ of imaginalization as Titus Burkhart wrote, to make of the body a spirit, and of the spirit a body. Prime matter is alchemically known under a variety of colorful names, such as Massa Confusa, which is how I began this paper, the Abyss, the Black Mountain, and so forth, but often is referred to simply as the stone. When it has been alchemically transformed into a substance that can, be, that can turn base metals into gold, it is known as the philosopher's stone, or in its liquid form as the elixir, or the elixir of the philosophers, or Gnostics. To transform the lowly stone, a variety of stages had to take place over a set period of time. Sometimes these stages were described by physical applications, and sometimes by coloring processes associated with these applications. Physical applications in some texts could involve more than 40 stages, but the principal ones were separation, coagulation, dissolution, mortification, which included putrefaction, and conjunction. The principal coloring processes associated with alchemy were black, yellow, sometimes yellow, white, and red. We cannot here go into all of these fascinating procedures since Ibn Arabi keeps his discussion to the physical proce- of, the, of the physical process to a minimum basically to the primary principles of dissolving and coagulating, he zeroes in on the combination of sulfur and mercury, or quicksilver, and alludes to a process of divestment from materiality corresponding to separation and unification in spiritual perfection, which suggests conjunction. Alchemy is not only associated with transforming base metals into gold, but is also associated with physical health, imagined in its liquid form as the water of immortality, the elixir, from the Arabic word al-ixir. As such, it enters into the mysterious story of the green man, Khidr, who accompanies Moses on a strange mission encountered in the Quran. And I refer you to the Quran for this story. Sulfur and mercury were the chief protagonists in this endeavor. The two minerals needed to be, they called them minerals, needed to be separated from the substance and then united to form the philosopher's stone. Sulfur was considered the masculine principle, the equivalent of fire. Mercury was for the most part considered feminine, the equivalent of water. The prima materia at some stage was placed in a glass vessel known as the alembic, a word derived from the Arabic ibrik. In physical alchemy, the the alembic consisted of three basic parts, the glass vessel, usually egg-shaped, which is subjected to heat, a long tube and a smaller attached vessel which collected the distillate. A furnace or athanor, another word that was derived from the Arabic tanur, provided the various degrees of heat needed for the transformation. The combination of sulfur and mercury resulted in cinnabar, a red mercury sulfate, called in Arabic al-kibrit al-ahmar, the red sulfur. Spiritual alchemy. We're going to talk about spiritual alchemy now. Spiritual Spiritual alchemy is treated throughout his works, and it involves freeing the soul from the traps of matter, allowing the caged bird, so to speak, to fly to realms inaccessible to human configuration. In spiritual alchemy, metals are made into symbols. Alchemical procedures are spiritualized. The world of spiritual alchemy is a world that uses concrete physical objects as well as fanciful, imaginal ones as vivid symbols to limb the path and and a process to achieve complete wholeness and health physically, psychically, and spiritually. The first matter is in the soul, says one alchemist, and the soul appears to be the substance that Ibn Arabi takes as the subject of the alchemical work. By means of various operations, the human soul must be purified, dissolved, and crystallized anew in order to be restored to its primordial nature. This is the quest for the Red Sulphur, the title of Cloud Adas's masterful biography of Ibn Arabi. As the Sheikh writes, I seek the city of the Prophet in search of the station of radiance and the red sulphur. Ibn Arabi associates the alchemical process with a mystical voyage undertaken by prophets and mystics known in its horizontal form as isra, or, or night journey, in its vertical form as miraj, or ascent. The fact that the impetus for the voyage comes from God rather than from the person makes God the ultimate alchemist. Ibn Arabi describes the primary stage of his own miraj as a kind of separation and dissolution of material substance. Personifying each of the elements, he sloughs them off and engages in dialogue with the successive elements of water, earth and air. It is only when he has freed himself from material concerns that he can engage in dialogue with the prophets of the planets and learn their secrets. Upon his return to earthly consciousness, he successively passes through the elements again, reintegrating himself but in a way that is different from the configuration he had before. In effect, he has been transformed into the precious red sulfur, the spiritual equivalent of the alchemist's gold. To remove the spiritual equivalent of defects in mineral bodies requires the alchemical healer. This is the divine or spiritual physician, the prophet and friend of God, the saint, the Zoharic rabbi, the Gnostic, the guru, the magician in the tarot deck, the one who can exercise a kind of spiritual and even physical algebra, which is the putting together algebra. the one who can repair, exercise tikkun, putting things back together, restoration, bringing together the fragmented soul personality and returning it to its primordial condition in the image of God, symbolized by goal as solidified light. This is the healer of wounds and words, epitomized in Chapter 15 of the Futuhat as the Prophet Idris. And we will be talking about Idris in my uh, workshop today. The spiritual alchemist joins things that are thought to be utterly opposed to each other, from the lowest element of fire and water, earth and air, to the highest notions of God as utterly beyond, to utterly here and makes something new that elucidates God's vast embrace of everything. He or she understands how God has established the heavens and the earth according to a certain order and knows how to work with this order to diagnose and prescribe a remedy for a particular human being suffering from the human equivalence of these mineral defects, whether they are afflicted by physical ailments, harmful desires, or egoistic inflation. The spiritual healers, prophets or teachers operate from the central domain of the heart, which is a knowing instrument. He or she offers the elixir, the elixir of the Gnostics, which will have a different taste for every imbiber. This is said to occur by way of the specific or private face. And what is this specific face? It is the direct and personal connection that the creature has with his or her lord. It is the acknowledgement that every human being has a particular connection with the divine that is his or hers alone. Hence, remedies will differ according to temperaments and needs. James Hillman talks about each person having their own particular color. Rabbi Nachman in the Hasidic tradition talks about each person having their own nigun or melody. It may be that certain people are born as genuine pure gold, as in Plato's Republic, or Maimonides' eight chapters where he speaks of those who are naturally virtuous versus those who are continent and need to struggle against their nature. The other option appears to be making artificial gold, working on oneself, in effect. It it signifies the transmutation of a baser metal or element of the psyche or the spirit into the equivalent of gold. Gilding was the opus contra natura, the work against nature. Additionally, Ibn Arabi suggests that not every person is, to, is destined to become golden. I found this really fascinating because I thought that was, when you say, we're all going towards the gold. But I think what he means is that the gold for some people is, for example, he gives the, uh, the proof text of, of iron in the Quran Surah Al-Hadid, iron, nicely named. He says, iron remains iron because of the usefulness in it, which is not in gold and other metals. As God the Most High said, we sent down iron, Quran 5725. He means that he sent it down from the rank of perfection because of its use for humankind. If it were cured of its sickness, the human being would, be, would remain deprived of the use that can exist only through iron. So I think this is just a remarkable passage. You know, that iron is, that's, that's gold for the iron. That this is its teleology. This is what it's striving for. So we shouldn't be disappointed if we don't end up with gold. Maybe we're very useful. <laughs> as we are. <laughs> Paradigmatic healers in Islamic Sufism are the prophets, Muhammad, Idris, Ilyas, Noah, Jesus, Moses, probably all of them. However, the ultimate healer is God. In the opinion of both the ancient alchemists and Ibn Arabi that one cannot safely perceive without a master, a guide who knows the art, from whom the apprentice can learn firsthand the techniques and methods, it cannot be learned from books, The master is a guide who knows how to cross over from the sensory to the supersensory. Ibn Arabi's writings abound with examples of remarkable men who can read footprints, smell a person's character, and so forth. It is clear in his view that physical things of this world have correspondences in the other world, the supersensory world, which is a world that is actually more real than the one given to our limited senses. And it is in this world sometimes referred to as the world of imaginalization, the Alam al-Mithal, that interactions with prophetic and saintly individuals can take place. Now we're going to turn to his third category, Divine Alchemy. Divine Alchemy's intent is to unify the soul's perception of the divinity so that the opposing claims of divine transcendence and immanence can be simultaneously perceived and affirmed as expressed by the Arabic word tawhid, declaring God one. Ibn Arami's works abound with discussion of this matter, it's everywhere. Divine alchemy is specifically mentioned in the Futuhat in connection with three activities of the divine, sitting on the throne, the divine throne, descending to humanity to listen to prayers, and witness, ma'iyya, The fact that the Divine is always with us wherever we are. These are all activities that suggest corporeality, actions that are equally positive and seemingly more appropriately of human beings. These descriptions appear to fly in the face of beliefs in God's ineffable immateriality, yet all are self-described activities of God attested to in the Qur'an and discussed by innumerable Muslim writers. This conundrum leads to questions of God's imminence, his likeness to things of this world, versus his transcendence, culminating in the paradoxical Quranic proclamation that his likeness is unlike any likeness. "Lesa shai. This is no doubt the most esoteric of the teachings on alchemy. If the real goal and gold for the seeker is to gain knowledge of God, and that only that will bring about real happiness. The stated goal of Ibn Arabi's alchemy of happiness then appears to be being able to hold these two seemingly contradictory aspects of God simultaneously, without leaning too far in either direction, or to mush them all together as if there were really no difference between them. This then is the sign of alchemical success, or as Ibn Arabi terms it, happiness. Saada, a happiness that consists in knowing God's Tauhid. Now, as an illustration, and I draw from the wonderful translation by Stephen Hertenstein of the Alchemy of Happiness, which is, yes, <laughs> fabulous, you must read it, all of you, just delightful translation with wonderful explanatory footnotes, it's just a gem. Uh, in it, there is a discussion, and I'm going to read uh, about this parable, and I titled this section Mirage or Mirage? The destination of the seeker depends upon the road on which he travels. In his chapter 178 on the alchemy of happiness, which is the book, in the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi relates a parable in which a philosopher and a follower of the spiritual path make an ascent, a miraj, in imitation of the Prophet Muhammad and successive Sufi mystics, including Ibn Arabi himself. Before he begins the tale of the two sojourners, Ibn Arabi introduces a chapter with a discussion of natural alchemy. In it, oh sorry, it is clear however that at the same time he is telling us how to cross over and ascend from this natural view of alchemy to the spiritual or even divine views. One of alchemy's chief aims, if it's not its chief aim, is to restore the human being's original nobility, that primordial golden nobility of having been created in God's image. For Ibn Arabi, this is expressed in the statement that every child is born a believer, equal to gold, but that one's parents make one belong to a certain religious domination, Christian, Zoroastrian, etc. This tarnishing process, or deviation from the divine equilibrium of gold, needs to be corrected by spiritual medicine, div ruhani, embodied in alchemy. The goal of the alchemist is to lead a life that culminates in perfect felicity. In the Aristotelian model, one can only judge if one has had a felicitous life at the end of it, looking back at a life well lived, but this is a, world of this, of, this is a life of this world, Aristotle also counsels one to to imitate a virtuous person in order to pursue an ethical life. But he has in mind a philosopher or sage, not a prophet or messenger. Ibn Arabi tells us there is more. Although the goal of the spiritual alchemist is knowledge, this is a knowledge that exceeds the bounds of the intellect and ordinary ethical action. The parable itself traces this ascent of the two, the philosopher and the disciple, as they travel together through the seven celestial spheres. While on the surface they are pursuing, pursuing the same aim, happiness, which both consider to be the fruit of knowledge, they differ on what this knowledge is and how they mean to obtain it. Hence, they obtain different kinds of knowledge, although the follower gains both his own spiritual knowledge plus the scientific knowledge gained by the philosopher. The philosopher begins with an attitude of, I already know, I don't need advice, I can do it by myself. He certainly feels that he needs no guide, he has the same capabilities, he has the same intellectual prowess as any prophet or messenger. He relies on his own opinion, which Ibn Arabi considers a spiritual sickness. If he has done ascetic exercises, and some of the philosophers did do their their ascetic Spiritual, uh, philosophically spiritual uh, exercises. And he perhaps has achieved certain mastery over his body, but his ego has been built up in the process. He can't learn anything, and in the end he will have to begin again if he is to obtain complete knowledge and utmost happiness. The follower relies on being taught by the eternal and divine teacher. The philosopher relies on personal opinion and philosophy learned in books. From the celestial spheres, which are cleverly personified, they both learn matters that can be accessed through the intellect. However, at each stage in the journey, the disciple is given additional knowledge, the particular kind of knowledge bestowed upon him by the prophet who resides on that sphere, knowledge that the philosopher cannot attain through his own reflection. In succession, the two converse with moon, Mercury, Venus, Sun, Jupiter, and Saturn, they all speak. But unlike the philosopher, the disciple gains knowledge from the prophets, who also speak. Adam, the moon, John the Baptist and Jesus at the planet Mercury, Joseph, appropriately, at the planet Venus, Idris, who is sometimes thought to be the biblical Enoch on the sun, Moses at Jupiter, and Abraham at Saturn. The two companions receive very different treatment. In fact, by the time they reach Saturn, that's the end of the celestial spheres for them, the philosopher, now thoroughly depressed and not getting what his companion has gotten, receives a scolding from Saturn. <laughs> that's terrible to be scolded by Saturn. <laughs> he has been allowed to meet the planets, but he can't go any higher than Saturn, the seventh heaven, because its intellect can't penetrate the Upper realms. That must be a terrible disappointment, he has put all his trust in his, his rational self and his intellect. Not only that, though, but he clearly lacks the proper respect, the adab, since he has come with an attitude of self-importance and lack of humility. Furthermore, he is deprived of the power of creative imagination, whose seat is in the heart, which allows the follower to experience more subtle levels of perception. When the, when the philosopher must stop at Saturn, described as a very gloomy place for him, in fact, the metallic equivalent of lead, it is pointed out to him that this is his ego personified. Anyone acquainted with traditional alchemy knows that this is in fact the beginning of the process rather than the end of the journey. Lead is the lowest of low, the heaviest of metals, the most impenetrable, the substance that needs to be transformed through intense mortification. Meanwhile, the follower is able to ascend to meet various wonderful spiritual entities, the Lot Tree of the Limit, the pen and the tablet, the throne, the cloud, the divine names, and finally the absolute end of the journey, the presence, where he is able to gain this knowledge of what tawhid, divine alchemy really is imagery is important in the ascent this is if if any of you are familiar with alchemical you know, think of the european alchemical texts you've seen these illustrations these marvelous illustrations of dragons and and red and and green lions some of them with their paws cut off and and hermaphrodite and and all sorts of very mysterious and very colorful figures that uh, really excite the imagination. Well we don't find, <laughs> we don't find that, that, that this is an illustrated uh, ascent, an illustrated alchemical process with Ibn Arabi. So it really is, you really have to use your creative imagination, you really have to exercise it in order to get into the whole story and see the planets and, and rise even above them. The difference between the follower and the philosopher is that the follower has a greater range of experience, a greater access to subtle knowledge because of the symbolic language that's found within the follower's religion. Philosophers can study the planets with their instruments and read theoretical abstract tomes, whereas the follower can combine this with an active imagination. The two return by different paths. The philosopher, who is now back where he started from, wants to retrace his ascent, this time as a believer. On the other hand, what the follower has accomplished leaves him permanently transformed. As Stephen Hurtenstein has pointed out, he now has an integrated view of himself, the cosmos and the divinity. He returns to the world of matter in which he must live. He's not absorbed as some who don't return, but his vision is now with two eyes, with eyesight and with insight. I'd like to close with an alchemical benediction adapted from a passage in Burkhardt's Alchemy. With the help of the Almighty, may this stone free you and protect you from the severest illnesses, guard you against sadness and trouble, and especially against whatever may be harmful to body and soul. May it lead you from darkness to light, from desert to home, and from indigence to riches. Thank you.